Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Dr. Gad Sad, a public intellectual fighting political correctness, a professor of marketing at John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and author of the new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. And Dr. Sad, thanks for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. I want to start here. There was even a song in the 1960s called The Good Life. What is The Good Life and how has it changed over time? I, I'm not sure I, I know which song you're talking about, but I'm, I don't think that there are certain elements about what the good life is that have changed. Now, there are some cultural differences in terms of what makes us happy, but there are certain universal elements that hold true, not only across time, but across space. Having a purpose and meaning in your life, having hopefully a good social network that you can rely on, a great group of friends and family members, engaging in play, doing things in moderation. So many of the things that the ancient Greeks have already told us about turn out to be uh, exactly correct. So you mentioned differences within cultures. Do we see that even in the West? Or are we talking about diverse cultures um, that are very different from the West? How, how are the similarities and differences? Well, the, the similarities are some of the things that I just mentioned, right? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I study as an evolutionary psychologist is what are the things that are the same across cultures, which are called human universals, and what are things that are different across cultures? And even differences across cultures, are they due to biology or to factors that are non-biological? So, for example, how much spice is used in a particular cuisine mm -hmm. While there are huge cross-cultural differences, the, the Mexican cuisine is much spicier than the Swedish cuisine, that difference exists for a biological reason because climates that are hotter have greater food pathogens, and therefore with greater food pathogens, you end up needing to find, needing to find a solution for these food pathogens, and spices is an antimicrobial property. So, uh, so to get back to happiness, finding purpose and meaning, having a good spouse, engaging in play, all of these things are universally true. What might be different across cultures are things like, for example, if you're a collectivist or an individualist society, US, Canada, Britain have historically been individualist societies, whereas the Far East are collectivist societies, our happiness is a lot more linked to individual pursuits for individual cultures, whereas, not surprisingly for collectivist pursuits, there's a greater focus on interdependence across people. But largely speaking, most of the metrics of happiness are the same across cultures. So do we have in humans an innate desire for happiness? In other words, do we have something inside of us that says, I want to be happy? Yes, so when you ask people, what is your fundamental goal in life? 
an overwhelming majority will answer, I want to be happy. Now, of course, the challenge then becomes, so how do I become happy? I mean, it was quite daunting for me to have the, if I can say, the chutzpah to write this book, because of all topics that philosophers have written about, probably none has been as frequent as writing about the good life and how to be happy. And so in my case, I thought that, okay, well, my unique experiences in life are are only true to me, so I could certainly add that to the literature. And then I brought in all kinds of ancient wisdoms coupled with contemporary science, and uh, hopefully I've come up with a, with a good read. But in terms of your general question of how to be happy, there isn't a singular prescription. I don't have the necessary hubris to tell you, here are the, you know, the eight prescriptions that guarantee you happiness. But what I can assure you is that if you implement these things, it statistically increases your chances of happiness. Dr. Sad, it sounds to me like there's a lot of unhappy people in the world today, maybe more so. Do you see this happening? Is this a trend that people are increasingly despondent? So the research, at least for the, for the U.S. data, shows that for men, actually, there isn't much of a dip in happiness. Whereas for women over the past 30, 40 years, there's actually a precipitous drop in their happiness you know, and well-being scores speculatively argue that one of the reasons that is driving that dip in happiness score for women is militant feminism, which kind of relates, which well, not kind of, it very much relates to my previous book, The Parasitic Mind, where I talk about idea pathogens. So militant feminism is an idea pathogen because it is it, it rejects innate human nature, right? Men and women should be equal under the law, of course, but that doesn't mean that men and women are indistinguishable from each other. Some of the things that make men happy are exactly the same as some of the things that make women happy, but others are quite different. So, for example, when second wave feminists said proverbially, you know, burn your bras, you can do whatever a man can do. Hey, if he, can, if he wants to have one night stand, so could you. Well, it doesn't take much of an evolutionary psychologist to realize that women woke up after having had many of these one-night stands and said, you know what, that doesn't give me much happiness. So I think that there are some of these cultural war issues that have seeped into our psyche that have perhaps made women a lot less happy over the past 30, 40 years than men. How about the impact of social media on happiness? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So look, social media, like most things, can either be a, you know, a positive or a negative. So for example, for me, I can think of endless positive benefits that I have reaped from being on social media. I have met all sorts of people that have been intersected with my world that I would have never had the pleasure and honor of meeting were it not for social media. I met my musical childhood hero, the lead singer of the Stylistics, mm. and we've become friends through social media. But of course, to your point, social media is a, is a huge trap because what happens on social media, take for example, uh, you know, Instagram or Facebook, it allows us to curate to the world our best foot forward. I, I show you the, the great vacation I just took. I show you the nice car I just bought. I show you how I'm getting into shape. But I don't show you all the negative elements of my life. And because we are a social comparison species, meaning that part of our happiness is defined by how well relevant others are doing, when I see everybody on Facebook and Instagram leaving, leading these glorious, happy lives, and hey, I'm not, then that will make me 
unhappy. And so, yes, there's definitely a trap that has been uh, laid out uh, with social media for us. Dr. Sad, I want to go to a very specific example regarding social media, which is fascinating to me, and it's the public pictures that people put forward on their profiles. And you look at that, and then you look at a picture of them from another source, and it looks nothing like them. How do we reconcile reality uh, with happiness? In other words, if we don't really look like that, and then someone finds out, could we truly be happy about it? Well, that, that, that speaks to my point about the curation of our, yeah. of our fake self, right? It, it speaks to the fact that the person that you are deeply envious of on Facebook is not telling you that they're actually having a really bad marriage, that they, they're suspecting their spouse of cheating on them with their really hot neighbor. You're only seeing that very, very carefully curated image. And so that's, that's a problem. That's why, by the way, I, in the book, I talk about happiness being a positional emotion. And what I mean by positional emotion is that, as I mentioned earlier, our happiness is, is not just a metric, an absolute metric of where we stand in life. It's also dependent on how my relevant others are doing. So let me give you a specific context. Take, for example, the relationship between the frequency with which people have sex and happiness. Well, it, it probably won't surprise anybody in your audience that all other things considered, that you know, the more sex that someone has, the happier they are. But now comes the second part that speaks to our point. It's not only important that I have a lot of sex, what's really important is that I have more sex than my friends. That's what makes me happy. And so I joke in the book that in light of that, you should try to make sure to be friends with a lot of celibate and chaste nuns because then you could have sex and hopefully they're being celibate. Now that's my ticket to happiness. It's a great way to look at things. Dr. Gad Sad, I'd like to talk about the comparison. Can we have and know happiness without knowing sadness? And is that an important component to being happy? Wow. What a great question. So I talk about this in the following sense. Uh, so mm, some of your viewers or listeners may not know that, uh, you know, my background, uh, my childhood, I grew up in Lebanon and uh, we, we are Lebanese Jews. And so when the civil war broke out in the mid seventies, it became, you know, very difficult and very dangerous, if not impossible to be Jewish in Lebanon. We faced some very difficult moments and then we had to flee and emigrated to Canada. Now, why am I saying all this? Because I argue that that, anti-fragility stressor actually has made me happier in life because I can always contextualize whatever is making me feel uncomfortable at the moment against the backdrop of what I felt in my childhood. So I'll give you an example, you know, in, in doing this media tour for, you know, to promote my latest book, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I'm appearing on all sorts of shows. I'm traveling at times you're tired. And whenever I start catching myself kind of whining internally, I'll stop and say, I mean, are you really whining about all these great people who want to talk to you about your book? How about you think back of the miracle of escaping Lebanon and put things in perspective? So I think to your point, we have to experience some difficult moments, whether it be fear or sadness or other negative emotions to be able to contextualize them and compare them to the, uh, the elated state of happiness. Yes. 
Dr. Sad, it's interesting you bring this story up because my own grandmother who came out of World War I, Italy, and uh, she came to the United States of America and just loved this country to her dying day. When we as children would complain, she would say something like, you need to go back to the old country, which is similar to your story. But the question is, if people have not had that experience, how do they actually relate to it? I don't think that anybody has lived a perfectly carefree life. So look at some stuff. The stressor may not be as difficult as you went through, you know, the Holocaust or you went through the Lebanese Civil War. But there are always difficult situations that you face and that you've overcome. That makes you a winner rather than wallowing in victimhood. And then use those difficult moments in your life to contextualize whatever it is that is bringing you down today. So I'll, I'll give you a, a great example that I discuss in the last chapter of the book. There I talk about two stories of incredible existential gratitude. I'll, I'll mention one for now. So, th- so one of the greatest guests that I've ever had on my show is someone that people would not know. He's not a famous professor or you know actor or whatever. He's a gentleman who spent 29 years in prison for a murder that he ended up being exonerated from. Wow. Uh, his name is David McCallum. I think he went to prison at the age of 17 and came out, you know, in his mid forties. And as we were chatting, I just couldn't believe how calm he was, how void of vindictiveness, a sense of vengefulness, uh, revenge. And so I, I, as we were chatting, I said, you know, David, how could it be that you could be so, you know, filled with so much grace? You, you strike me as a, you know, reincarnation of Buddha. You're a, you're a much better man than I am because if someone had stolen nearly three decades of my life, I would want to set the world on fire. And then he answered the following way. He said, well, my sister has cerebral palsy. She's been bedridden for many, many years. And yet, you know, she finds a way to, to smile. And so I'm not sure that whatever I went through is that bad compared to her. So to your point, even if you yourself may not have gone through something that allows you to contextualize, you can always look to someone else who has it much worse than you, and then you could put whatever struggles you're going through in that context, and hopefully that can encourage you to go on. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Dr. Gatsad in just a moment. Online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Continue now on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Dr. Gad Sad. The book is The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. So a lot of people think that if they hit the lottery, get a lot of money in some way, they will be happy. Does money lead to happiness? Absolutely not. Uh, and I actually, again, thank you for that great question. I have, a, I have an entire chapter where I talk about different correlates to happiness. 
how does our personality affect happiness? How does religiosity affect happiness? And to your point, to your question, does money affect happiness? And the classic study that most academics cite is a, is a study whereby they found that up to about $75,000 money is positively correlated with happiness. But beyond that inflection point, it doesn't, it doesn't matter much. Now, recently there's been some debate whether 75,000 is the correct number or whether it should be, you know, a, a bit higher. But the general point is that obviously you can't be existentially happy if you're struggling to know whether you're going to feed your children tonight, if you're struggling to know whether you're going to have safe shelter to sleep tonight. But once all of your basic needs are met, or what Abraham Maslow, the, the famous humanist psychologist, when he talked about his, you know, his hierarchy of needs, once your fundamental needs are met, Money doesn't add much to happiness. Uh, so I don't think, for example, that the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, is billions of times happier than you uh, or I because he's got that money. He may, he may have a horrible marriage and have very few friends, whereas you may have a great marriage and many wonderful friends who give you solace and protect you and take care of you. It is absolutely not the case that money leads to happiness. And that's why, by the way, so one of the things that I talk about in, in another early chapter is the two fundamental decisions that either bring you great happiness or great misery, choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. And when I'm discussing choosing the right profession, I specifically make the point that it's, it's really not choosing the job that gives you the most money that will make you happy in the long run. It's choosing a job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse. So you could be a chef or an architect or a podcaster or a stand-up comic or an author. All of these jobs are very different, but what they share in common is that they create something out of nothing, right? A new stand-up comedy routine, a new dish, a new bridge, a new book. And so the mere fact of immersing yourself in creative processes is a you know, a guaranteed pathway to purpose and meaning. So if we talk about the ideal job as you do in the book, how about the idea of consistency versus variety in work? Because there was a time in America not so long ago, and maybe in Canada as well, that people had careers that just lasted them for a lifetime. And now people tend to switch and have jobs for short periods of time and then move on to do something else. Yeah, fantastic question. So I do have an entire chapter on variety as the spice of life. So I talk of, and I'll come, I'll come in a second to specifically to your focus on jobs. But in that chapter, I talk about different domains where you might instantiate, you know, your desire for variety, food variety, exercise variety, intellectual variety, which I spend the most time on and sexual variety, which could, could lead to problems because if you're in a monogamous union, then seeking a variety within that contract might be problematic, certainly morally if not in other ways. When it comes to job variety seeking, in the book, I didn't specifically look at your question, which is sticking to a singular job for your life versus going from job to job, but rather within a given job, if you have varied tasks, that's going to make you happier. So think again of the prototypical factory worker who could easily be replaced by a robot because they're, they're just on an assembly line. They're repeatedly doing the exact same movements. You know, they're never expected to show any initiative. 
they're, they're really just worker ants. That can't lead to existential happiness at, at your job. Sure, it can pay, give you a paycheck, but if I'm able today to work on a book, tomorrow I'm going to teach a class, the next day I'm going to go on the Rob Schilling show, the next day I'm going, right? So there's, within the context of my broad job description as a professor, there are many, many hats that I wear. Well, that makes me a lot happier because yes, I'm always immersed in some creative process, but the creative process changes from day to day. Sometimes it changes four or five times in a given day. And boy, that makes me happy. Dr. Sand, you have a great chapter in your book on finding the right life partner and some of the stories about people who tried to set you up um, and it didn't work out so well. So we have societies in which that is the way that it's done, that uh, marriages are set up and arranged by families. Is there any correlation, happiness one way or the other, we choose ourselves or someone chooses for us? So that's a great question. So I don't know if anybody has conducted studies on your specific question, meaning Am I more likely on average to be happy in my marriage if I made the choice versus whether it was arranged? I uh, bet someone has done it, but you know, I don't want to misspeak, so I'm not, I'm not familiar with that research. But all that's happening in, in the context of arranged marriages, the attributes that people are looking at remain the same. It's just rather than the individual making it, they're subcontracting it to their parents, or if I can actually put it in a slightly different way, let's suppose you're 18 years old and you're very much shaped by your hormonal drives and therefore you're looking at this prospective spouse only from the perspective of the fact that they really turn you on and you have a great physical intimacy. Well, maybe your parents are a lot wiser than you and they may realize that while it's wonderful to have physical chemistry with a partner, that's not going to sustain you over the long haul. And therefore, their wisdom might permit them to focus on attributes when they're making the choice on your behalf that you otherwise don't have the experience to do so yourself. And so I can't speak specifically about whether arranged marriages on average are more likely to lead to happiness or not. But what I can tell you is that we know from evolutionary psychology that there are some maxims that we can follow to increase the likelihood of us having a, a happy union. So in evolutionary psychology, there are two opposing maxims, if you'd like. There is the opposites attract maxim and versus the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And it turns out that for long-term success of your marriage, if that's what you're looking for, as opposed to you know a short-term dalliance behind the bushes, it's overwhelmingly the case that the research shows that birds of a feather flock together. And that in that case, the question is, well, flocking on which feathers? I mean, we're, are we assorting with one another because we have the same eye color, the same hair color? And of course, the answer is not. We, we want to assort on fundamental life values, on fundamental belief systems. If I am a highly religious person where my faith is at the center of everything that I do, and my prospective spouse is someone who is a caustic atheist, again, it doesn't take an, a, a fancy marriage counselor to recognize that you're already starting on the wrong footing. So to the extent that you could find someone with whom you share some of these foundational life values and mindsets, then you're certainly increasing your chances of happiness. 
You know, this is such a fascinating subject, and I think part of the problem is is that when we are young, with rare exception, we don't have the vision to discern the things that you just referenced and make those wise decisions, and we do tend to follow our own chemistry. So how do we get past that as a young person who might be hearing this conversation but doesn't have the life perspective to actually discern the correct answer? Well, I mean, it's going to sound cliche-ish, but that's why the old adage, knowledge is power, right? If some young person is reading my book and says, oh, you know, actually that exactly resonates with me. I like Susan or Bob because they're so sexy and we have great sex. But here comes Dr. Saad telling us that uh, the, the neuroanatomy and the hormonal profile of your relationship is not such that 40 years into your marriage, you're going to have the same butterflies in your stomach and the same tingling that you did the first time that you had uh, surreptitious sex with that partner when you were 18 years old, right? So there is no better way than to either read the correct books, listen to older people who are wise. I mean, that's what wisdom is, right? You just have to open yourself up to uh, people who've already tried it and tested it, and hopefully that will lead you to the right path as a young person. We hear a lot of surveys about this country or that country being the happiest country in the world. So I'm wondering, first of all, if there's anything to that and if you've studied why, and also if there's a social contagion element of happiness within society. There's definitely a social contagion element to not just happiness, to many phenomena. So it's, and and that, that mechanism is what a lot of network theorists study. So network theorists are exactly the folks who study how things propagate across networks. So in the same way that you could think of a virus propagating within a social ecosystem, well, your obesity propagates across. So, you know, your friend's friend, if they put on weight, that predicts the likelihood of you putting on weight. So to your point, there's definitely a social contagion element to many emotions in general and happiness in particular. To your first part of your question, you know, are there cultural elements to happiness? Is, is one culture happier than other? I haven't studied it myself, but I certainly cite the research in the book. And every year there is a survey, a global survey that comes out with the rankings of uh, happiness across nations. And it's almost always the same set of 10, 12, 14 countries that make it into the top 10. Usually those countries are countries where you have endemic trust within those societies. So it could be trust between the individuals in the society, it could be trust between the populace and the governmental agencies. So it's Sweden, it's Switzerland, it's Canada, although increasingly less so, it's Norway, it's Denmark, it's, it's many of those countries that you know have a strong social safety net and with great both individual trust across individuals and trust between individuals and governmental agencies. Something so interesting that you conclude the book with is the topic of regret and actions versus inactions. What I could have done or what I did that I regret. Is there a way to get past all of that? That distinction that you just mentioned turns out to be one that was really explored extensively by one of my former doctoral professors in my PhD. His name is Thomas Gilovich, and to exactly to your point, he, he argued that there are two types of regret, which, by the way, he's not the first one to, to have recognized that, but he studied it empirically. 
there is regret due to action, as you said. Uh, I regret that I cheated on my wife and that put an end to my marriage versus regret due to inaction. I, I regret that I never pursued my interest in becoming an artist and I became a pediatrician because my dad is a pediatrician and his dad is a pediatrician, but I hate medicine. I never, I, I was always interested in architecture and art and I didn't live an authentic life. Well, it turns out that over the long haul, what really haunts us in terms of our regret calculus are the things that we didn't do. It's the regrets due to inaction. And so to your question, can we do something about it? Well, there are two ways that you can do something about it. Number one, there's something called anticipatory regret. And that's when, when you're facing a decisional fork in your life, if you say, I'm going to choose the option that's least likely to to cause regret in the future, that's the one that I will take. So Jeff Bezos, famously the, the founder of Amazon, used exactly that mechanism when he was deciding to leave his cushy, secure, high-paying job to start Amazon. He said, I didn't want to be 80 years old or down the line and regret that I didn't take a shot. So that's called anticipatory regrets. The second way by which you can alleviate these haunting waves of regret is to recognize that in many times, that which you are regretting that you didn't do, you can still do. Now, you and I can't today alter the reality that we're never going to be NBA superstars for all sorts of reasons. That, so, so if I have that regret, I'm never going to assuage that regret. But if you're 65 years old and you never went to university and have always regretted that you never got a university education, well, I tell the story in the book of a gentleman who escaped Germany just before the the Nazis came in, and he ended up doing a bachelor's, master's, and then finished his PhD in his early 90s. So for many things, it's never too late. Get off the couch and do it. Finally, Dr. Saad, I'm wondering if you could give me two or three manifestations of how society would change if we were all happier. Uh, well, we wouldn't spend a, an inordinate amount of time uh, slashing each other on social media. Mm. If there was a way to implement the stoic tenet that oftentimes what brings us injury in our emotional life is not so much an event that we face, but the way that we respond to the event, right? It, the event itself might be beyond our control as the Stoics taught us, but the way that I respond to the event is totally within my control. So if you only implement that prescription, if you only immerse yourself in that Stoic tenet, boy, that would make every individual in society, and hence everyone in society, happier. Dr. Gad said if people would like to get a copy of The Sad Truth About Happiness, or if perhaps they'd like to follow your work online, how can they do that? Oh, thank you for that question. Uh, so, they, so The Sad Truth About Happiness, by the way, is it's a play on my last name, which is S-A-A-D. It's not S-A-D, it's S-A-A-D. They can order it, of course, on Amazon. They can go to my publisher, uh, regnary and order it there. It's available in many, you know, brick and mortar bookstores. If you want to uh, follow me uh, or connect with me online, I have a website, gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D dot com. Uh, on, on Twitter, which is probably the place where I'm most active, uh, I guess today it's called X, no longer Twitter. It could be at gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I also have an Instagram page. I have a public Facebook page. So there are all sorts of ways by which we can connect. Uh, and I hope to hear from some people. 
Dr. Sad, you've done a remarkable job in covering a difficult topic. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Oh, thank you for being a great host. I really enjoyed our conversation. Cheers. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. <laughs>